Hey, this is Gary. This is Mike. And Daniel. We're not professionals. We're just three addicts sharing our experiences, strength, and hope regarding recovery. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to other addicts and to practice these principles in our lives. Welcome to another episode of the 12th Step Podcast. My name is Gary. And this is Daniel. And no mic tonight. <laughs> no, he's he's absent. He is absent. That's all right. We've had a uh, we've had a, a summer full of adventures. And yes, I'm, I'm back now. Yes, you're back, and Mike is gone. And Mike is gone. Well, give us a couple of weeks, and we'll have the band back together. Yes. It'll be great. Yes. So, I've given a little bit of thought about what we might talk about, and I've had this on my mind for a little while. And I think it might be appropriate for me uh, to share my story, at least some of it. All right. Sounds great. Sounds I've heard some of it. I may hear some new stuff. You may hear some new stuff. So, um, I, I've, I've shared this story very, very often, mm-hmm. but I've never share, I never share it lightly. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know this this might be a at least an example of what a uh, first step might look like mm-hmm. in a 12 step recovery group. So we'll jump into it and then feel free to uh interject or ask questions or fair enough. I don't know if I'm going to want to. Well, it, it's it's a story. Well, <laughs> it's kind of hard to jump in, but we will uh, it, it'll be interesting. Um I know everyone's first step is personal. Mm -hmm. It's tough. It's emotional. Mm -hmm. Um, I know this will be a little bit different because it's just me sitting here. But uh, at the same time, I'm sure in the back of your mind, you're going to be thinking, well, there's a lot more than just one person hearing this. Yeah, but do you know what? There's also a part of me that is grateful for this because um, I, well, I, I I have journals and things like that, but... I got so much, uh, so much out of my life's experience that that's something that I would really like to pass on yeah. to my kids. That might sound kind of strange for some of you out in, in the audience, but you know, there comes a point in time when I think that you become very, very grateful for your experiences. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get started. All right. Let's dive in. Let's dive in. Okay. I think. From a very, very early age, I had um, I had kind of a predisposition to some of the things that really contributed to uh, my different addictions. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I was very much a, even from the age of five, I was very much a completist and had to have things in, in order and, and stuff like that. But I don't think, but I think the story of my uh, sexual addiction really begins probably in junior high. Mm-hmm. Now, before that, I did have, you know, I remember some exposures to pornography from some foster brothers that we had coming in and out of the house or different things like that. But mm-hmm. but there was nothing, I didn't have a lot of access to anything like that. Yeah. So those were far and few in between and and most of that was... I don't know, probably curiosity along those kind of things. But, my, but 
it started to look like addiction when I got into junior high. And what that looked like is there was a, there was a group of girls who in seventh grade, and that would put me at 12 ish. Right. Yeah. Um, they decided that it was all right. Well, they knew that it made me very, very uncomfortable to give me all kinds of attention. And mm-hmm. so they did. Okay. And they were very, uh, they could be very sexual in the things that they would say. They would say things that would, um, uh, you know, imply or they would explicitly say that we had like, you know, been together the night before and, 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 and they, you know, how great it was. And they would go on and on and on about this kind of stuff. Sometimes they'd sit on my lap. Sometimes they would always put me in these really, really embarrassing situations. So, and then the guys that liked them, um, would mock me mm-hmm. or make fun of me or kind of push me around a little bit. And I had the advantage of that, you know, I hit my growth spurt and things like that pretty early. So I was pretty tall, pretty big kid. So I didn't get physically abused over much apart from maybe being pushed around a little or tripped up, things mm-hmm. like that. But what, what happened was is, is that as I, it was, it was this, I developed this strange way of dealing with this circumstance because this happened like every day for three years, mm. you know, all that, through all of junior high. That doesn't sound now, fun. It was, it was really, really strange because at one time I hated the situation, but I also really liked the attention. Yeah. Cause after all, you know, half a dozen girls are paying attention to me and they're saying things that I kind of wished were true, yeah. you know, or at least was very intriguing. And, and it turned into this really, really, um, kind of self-destructive pattern where, uh, I don't know, it was about the same time that I discovered masturbation. And then I would start masturbating to the ideas or the things that they would say. Yeah. And it was also a way to deal with the embarrassment or the stress or things like that. Mm -hmm. So then it became this really vicious cycle where I would seek out the attention or put myself in a situation where they could, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, embarrass or and it was always embarrassing i never i never quite got over that but and so it became this really vicious cycle yeah and then, and then you use it to cope right those emotions and feelings use it to and cope thoughts. or to explore out the fantasy or yeah. whatever it was but i i developed some really really bad thinking errors connected with this i left junior high um believing that because there was a part of me that understood or knew that they were they were teasing me. What they were saying wasn't true. Mm-hmm. You know, the things that they say that we did together or whatever like that wasn't true. Um, they weren't really interested in me because, you know, I did try to to flirt or, or to, I don't know, I'd like ask them for phone numbers and things like that. And it, it was always like a joke or yeah. wrong number that set me up to call somebody who then, then they would make fun of me or, or whatever. But one of the, the one of the the thinking here's that I brought away from that was um girls lie. Mm-hmm. Okay. They might say something, but they don't mean it. And they're making fun of me. Yeah, so a little bit of they're deceitful. Right. I'm their play toy. Right. Yeah. Okay. I like the attention, but they don't mean what they say. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, another thing that I took away from it was that as much as I liked the idea, they were making fun of me. So I must be unlovable. There must be something wrong with me wrong yeah. or I must be weird, you know, for the, f- to be the target of this all the time Yeah, and none of it's real. So there must be something wrong with me. And so, and, and those, those thinking errors really affected, affected me as I went through high school Yeah, because as much as I wanted a girlfriend and as much as I dated and I dated a lot, um, I didn't, you know, even if the girls began to show interest, I would think that they were just making fun of me. Yeah. You don't really mean that. That's not true. You're, you're, and then you're making, and you're making fun of me. Yeah. Now that, that, that has affected me so deeply, so deeply that, um, even today, some, what, 30 plus almost, you know, years later, Mm -hmm. um, when a person compliments me, I have to remind myself to take that at face value Mm -hmm. if I trust that person, you know, that, and there are occasions that I have to look at, at people and say, are you, are you teasing me? You know? So, and, and that's, that's even being aware that I do that. I still have to, to, to check that. So I think that that was the foundation a lot. And, and it taught me that, um, that I could use this sexual release as a way to cope with things. Yeah that were unpleasant or, you know, so that started to become habitual in high school. Um, toward the end of junior high and into high school, I, I started realizing I I kind of, this might kind of sound strange, but I was also a little naive. I mean, I didn't connect the dots that what I was doing was, I didn't connect the dots that what I was doing was masturbation. Mm, okay. As weird as that sounds, you know, I, I, I didn't quite make that connection until I was a little bit either yeah later in junior high. And that's when I started thinking of it as a sin and a shameful act because, yeah. you know, that's, you know, that was a, that's not something that you do. That's something that was against my belief systems. And when I made that connection, then it started becoming very, Shame based, in that. right? Now, well, I mean, to be fair, it's not like they say, you know, this, this is what masturbation is. I know, yeah, you know, and so, and do you know what? I I don't blame I don't blame my religious leaders or my or my parents or anything like that at the time because I could tell that they were, you know, and I remember talking to them and and I remember talking to one of my ecclesiastical leaders and he just said, well, you know, the Lord loves you. Don't do it again, and. I thought that was great. So I, I committed not to do it again and eventually I would. And then I felt terrible and then yeah. I figured there was something wrong with me. And I certainly didn't want to go, you know, admit that I had done it again, done it again. And yeah. I tried that, I don't know, three or four times over those couple of years. And then my mother said something to me because, you know, really I, I was pretty low maintenance kid. I didn't, you know, I, I didn't get into any kind of trouble. I didn't experiment with any drugs or, or alcohol or anything like that, which is probably a good thing because, you know, with the addictive tendencies I had, I don't, I, you know, 
Yeah, I'm, I'm sure th- it would have latched onto any kind of. Thankfully, I skipped those choice. ones yeah. too. But she once, I remember her saying that um, I could do no wrong. Mm-hmm. I was a golden child. I could do no wrong. And I know she was very proud of me. And, and looking back at that, I could see that. But that's not how I internalized it. Yeah. I internalized it that I could do no wrong, meaning I, I couldn't fail. Yeah. I couldn't. I can't make a mistake. I can't make a mistake. Yeah. And that created the, the, the secret component of this. I can't let anybody know what I'm really dealing with mm-hmm. because if they find out, you know, and, you know, and keep in mind, I'm already dealing with, with thoughts of I'm already unlovable, mm-hmm. you, you know, imagine what would happen if they found out, you know, what a deviant I was. Yeah. You know, no, I, I definitely understand that. <laughs> I mean, my with mine, you know, for sure, with my parents, you know, I can't tell a therapist or I can't tell mm-hmm. my, my church leaders what's going on at home. It builds in that, you know, that kind of two dual personality or dual identity where it's like, oh, I got to hide me. Uh-huh. This is who I put in front. Right. So I get that. And so I tried, I, I tried talking to a couple times and, and when I, I kept getting the same, oh, just don't do it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I began to figure out that, well, all they're going to tell me is don't do it again. So I'll just, I'll take care of this myself and I'll yeah. just, I'll just won't do it again. And, but that never worked. No. You know, I mean, there were times, anyway, there were times that I sincerely, sincerely tried and it would fail. And, and that's when I began to really believe that there was something wrong with me, but Anyway, so this is this is kind of the long version of this. I don't, I don't usually get this long format kind of a thing to do. Uh, so I went I went on a mission. Mm-hmm. I went on a, on a mission for for my church, and so there was about two years that it really kind of I was gonna say kind of took a break, but that's not entirely true. There were there were a couple times on on the mission that I had acted out, and I talked to my mission president about it. And guess what he told me? Don't do it again. Yeah, Lord loves you. Don't do it again. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought, all right. And do you know what? That was really about the last time that I tried appealing to uh, an ecclesiastical leader for some guidance. Mm-hmm. You know, because that's what I was going to get. So. Yeah. No, I, I I completely understand. And do you know what? I don't fault them for it because they were probably giving me the best information that they had at the time, which yeah. wasn't a lot. But, um, so I came home and I got married, and that did that did slow things down. That did slow things down. But, but I felt like I felt like I had missed out on a lot of experiences in high school you know and i know that a lot of the things that drove me initially maybe i'm getting a little ahead of myself so when i was in my mid to late 20s you know i'd been married for a couple years 2 3 years and you know that's when i started well i'm an adult i can do whatever i want and so then i started seeking out you know, all of, all of those R-rated movies and things like that that I had to sneak around when I was a kid. I, mm-hmm. I could now watch. I'm gonna. I was gonna use the word openly, but it wasn't openly. My wife didn't know anything about it, but I could. I could go rent them, or I could go do whatever I want and and look at them. And I felt like I was justified in doing that because I was an adult. Mm-hmm. And that's that 
escalated, that slowly escalated to more and more graphic things. And then by the time we got a computer and the internet entered my home, that's, that's kind of when it graduated to more hardcore kind of pornography. Yeah. And then I did, I did that kind of acting out, but because I felt like I was denied so many experiences in high school, you know, because I, I didn't have a girlfriend and I wanted one. And, and I had so much, I had so much fantasy-based thinking about what sex was and what love was and what it was supposed to look like. That, you know, when I got married and it wasn't exactly that. You know, and now having said that, I understand never, ever, ever once have I ever regretted marrying my wife, mm-hmm. nor have I ever wanted to leave her or seek something else. It's just that I had this very fantasy-based idea of what that was supposed to look like, so yeah. I must be missing out or doing something wrong or, yeah. or whatever. And and that slowly began to, to escalate, and I, I would kind of probe things. You know, I'd kind of like put little feelers out to, and I bumped up against a lot of different things. You know, like I tried some phone sex kind of stuff, and then I tried strip clubs kind of stuff, and that that was too that was too open. That was too risky. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to. It had to be. Remember, I could do no wrong, so it had to be very, very secret. And, yeah. And eventually, eventually, I found, um, uh, fell into starting to contact prostitutes. You know, and about the same time, I finished school and I got a job and I and I opened a business, and because I owned because I owned this business and there was a lot of work, suddenly now I had lots of money mm-hmm. that I had access to that I didn't have to account for had lots of time, you mm-hmm. know, where I could go to the office or, or whatever that I didn't have to account for. Yeah. And, and it was like this perfect storm. Uh, I, I, as I was going to school, I worked in a, in a couple jobs that also gave me a lot of ideas. Yeah. And I had this weird habit of, oh, I'm not going to act on that now, but I'm going to file it away. Yeah. And then maybe I'll try that later. You know, so there was a lot of that. And then when I finally had the resources of time and money to go try some of those things out, I started to. And and then I led this double life for 16 years, from my mid-20s to like 41, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and man, I would, I would go through these terrible cycles of, of self-loathing and, and... And, um, it just, it just progressively got worse and worse, you know? So the more I hated myself, the easier, when you hate yourself, you'll find a way to ruin your life. Yeah. You know, find a way to ruin your life. You'll make things up. And, and I did that for years and years and I, I wasted so much time and so, so much money and things like that. And the more it went along, the more I hated myself and the more secretive I got. And and there were many, many times that I considered ending my life. And I remember one time I was sitting in, sitting in my office and I had a gun and I, you know, I, I pulled it out. I, I emptied it, took the clip out, unchambered the round but then I, I put the gun up to my head and I pulled the trigger a few times, you know, just click, click, click. And then I 
put it back. I, I put the, the ammunition back into it and, and chambered around and I put it up to my head and I had this fleeting thought that someday somebody might need me. I didn't think anybody did at the time. And surely if anybody found out what was going on in my life, you know, and I don't know what it was about that thought, but anyway, it was, it was enough to kind of break that moment and I put it away. But there were a lot of close calls that nobody really yeah. knew about. I never talked about. And I would put on a brave face and, and I would, and I did such, in a lot of ways I did a really good job of it because of how every, you know, how much it shocked my wife when she found, when everything came to light. But I didn't do as good as I thought I did because, well, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. I'll, I'll get there in just a minute. <laughs> but, so. I mean, just go, kind of retrace back to that, that, yeah. that thought. I mean. If you think about it now, how profoundly correct that thought was. I mean, I, I'm sure there's more than just one person that you've helped. Probably. Yeah. I'd like to think so. But do you know what the, one of the funny things is? A, a God moment. That's what my therapist yeah. likes to call him. Is, is I was sitting in the chair, and there was an empty chair right next to me. Mm. And I looked at the chair, and I thought, some I... Somebody someday might need me. I might need to help somebody. And I kid you not, one of the very first people that I helped. Sat in that chair? Sat in that chair. Wow. And we talked, and, and that was not lost on me. Yeah. You know, I was only a few months into recovery, and they needed somebody to talk to, so they came over and, and sat in that chair. And it was after the end of that discussion, I just sat there and just... Wow. Yeah. You know, but anyway, I was a collector of experiences and I don't know. I have no idea how much, I don't know. I, as part of an assignment for recovery, I had to sit down and try to make out lists of all of this kind of stuff. And some of it was just, girl with dark hair yeah <laughs> you know and that's a, that's hard to carry mm -hmm. you know it's hard to to be in a place where you feel like you've done so much wrong and so much damage that even if you wanted to you couldn't make it right yeah you know anyway so that went on, and then the year was 2011. And I think I started involving people in, in the mid to late 90s, but 2011 rolled around. And one of the girls that I was involved with, it's a, it's a long story, but the long and the short of it is is that, that um, she found out that I was married or somebody that she knew knew my wife. And she thought, but oh, so to find out whether I was actually married or not, she went to my wife's work and confronted her. And as you can imagine, that was very, very 
dramatic. Yeah. That was very traumatic. Traumatic. <laughs> My poor wife. I'm sure that it turned her world upside down and it blindsided her so terribly. Yeah. And and I I admitted to everything that I was busted for. Mhm. You know, um and I made a lot of blanket statements. You know, I I I said, "Yeah, you know, I I'd been with this person, but I that's the only thing that I admitted to. Yeah. And I tried to make a lot of blanket statements to cover everything else that I'd been up to. But do you know what? I tried, I tried really, really hard. I went back to my ecclesiastical leaders and did everything that they asked me to do, which was a little more than just stop it. Yeah. <laughs> but I sincerely did the very best I could I even looked the 12 steps up on the computer and in a very naive kind of way just says, oh, yeah, okay, I've done that, I've done that, I've yep, done that, I've done, done that. that. Before too. So I really don't need to look into that because I've done most of that kind of stuff. And and essentially found myself in a situation where I was white-knuckling it and that lasted about six or eight months. And then I found myself right back into it and I remember the moment that I gave up on myself. I remember. And there was a lot of traumatic things that happened in that time. Yeah. You know, I remember we tried very hard to involve as few people as possible. Not a lot of people knew what I was going through. You know, we kept it all very, very quiet. And my effort, even though it was sincere, was doomed to fail for a couple of reasons. I think the the biggest reason, the biggest reason that it failed was I was not honest about what I was dealing with. Mm -hmm. I kept that to myself. And in fact, vowed to bury it even deeper. You know, I'll admit openly to what I've been busted for, but everything else, no, there's not a chance in the world that I'm going to let that come out because it's only going to hurt more. Yeah. It's only going to cause, no. Or they'll, they'll use it against me or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Nope. Had those same thoughts. So I thought, no way. And I did the same thing. And do you know what? That was, that was probably, that was a huge mistake. That was a huge mistake. But I, uh, so I tried really, really hard. And when I failed this time, I got really suicidal about, I got really suicidal when I got busted then about the same time because of, because of some things at work. And I think a lot because of the behaviors and things that I had done, my, my business kind of collapsed. And so I was dealing with all of that identity. I was in a really bad place, really bad place. 2010, 2011 were awful. And I think that, that because all of that was going on, I was acting out so much more and I was, and I was being, I don't want to use the word careless, but I was taking much greater risks, much greater risks, which is, I think what, well, I mean, it makes sense. Uh, you know, things are really bad. Your business is collapsing, so yeah. more pressure. Mm-hmm. So you need something that copes, you know, balances that out. Yeah. So of course, with bigger fall, you need something to quote unquote, help boost you up which really it doesn't right. and then it you know the cycle just keeps spinning so so uh so that I, brings up the quick question sure. um since we're uh, we're almost to the end of the time now should we break it here no and then jump back in uh no let me keep going okay 
Let me keep going. But I think we are going to have to do this in two parts. Yes. So we'll have this traumatic part and then, then we'll go, then to we'll the have next. a happy part. All right. Sounds good. Okay. So let me get to the, let me, well, anyway, so, so, uh, so I'm busted. Uh, I, you know, I was doomed to fail because I lied. Yeah. Primarily, I think that's the biggest reason I lied. Mm -hmm. I kept it a secret and I was doomed to fail. And, and, um, so about six or eight months after that, when I started acting out again, that's when I, I, I remembered the exact moment I was, I was typing in, I was typing in, I was creating an email account so that I could start seeking people again, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and I remember typing in the password, you know, I, I, I created the, the username. It was going to be David Nomanson, no man's son. Yeah. David for the old Testament character who, mm -hmm. or, you know, person in the yeah. old Testament who defeated Goliath and then, yeah, yeah. you know, had an affair later. Yeah. And so I thought, I am no man's son. I am lost. And then my password was like hell or something like that. 666 hell. And I was typed because I knew I was done. And I that's, yeah. I remember pushing enter and that's when I gave up on myself. Mm. I thought I am just going to, I will do the very best I can to keep this a secret mm -hmm. until I can't anymore. And then I'll take it to my grave. Yeah. And that was the only solution that I could come up with. That was it because I had tried everything and reality of it was, is that I really did try to stop. And I really, really, I really, there were moments that I was so sincere and fought so hard yeah. and I couldn't do it. And I, I finally came to the conclusion I'm broken. It's mm -hmm. too late for me. I remember saying that all, all to myself all the time. It's too, it's too late for me. Maybe, maybe I can, influence other people to do some good mm -hmm. and maybe that'll help balance things out yeah but i've got too was, much red in my ledger <laughs> yeah, it was too in fact i really really found myself identifying with uh oh no who's the character in marley in scrooge um the ghost who first comes to scrooge so bob marley uh no it's not bob marley but marley is his name right yeah. Jacob Marley. Jacob Marley, that's yeah. it. In fact, yeah. he says that line, it's too yeah. late for me. Yeah. I'm here for you. Yeah. And that's the only, that's all the good that I thought that I could do. I really thought it was too late for me and, and I was going to, I was going to end that. And so I kept that, but my acting out got so, uh, yeah, it was really, really bad. Well, really it's, I bad. mean, it's kind of interesting, uh, going back, mm -hmm. you mentioned lying, you know, that is the most damaging part for a spouse. Oh, for sure. You know, they 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 can live through that, but I, it seems like, you know, from all the stuff I've read and the you know, people we, I've talked to, and that that lying is what damages things the most, and it hurts them the most. Um, but at the same I, time, I also think it hurts us too. Oh, for I, sure. I, I don't think we realize how damaging lying, even to ourselves, is because, like you said, you thought you're damaged beyond hope. Mm -hmm. Well, do you know what? You can't trust anybody if you lie. Yeah. You can't, um, because you see the world through your lenses and you think that everybody thinks the same way you do. So yeah. if I'm untrustworthy and I'm a liar, well, guess what? Everyone everybody else is. else is. Yeah. Everybody else is, you know? And so then you, you know, 
you stay in your own head and bounce your craziness around in there until you know, let alone you know your own experiences you know right. early on women lie they're yeah. not trustworthy so how can you open up to your wife and do you know what it, went, it's, it developed a little bit beyond that so it was just that people lie okay you know i don't in general just people yeah. completely are untrustworthy yeah. and not and dishonest yeah okay that's some messed up stuff. It is. But I'm a firm believer that, that there is not a situation in the world you can't make worse by lying about it. Yes. Oh, yeah. So, but you know what? I've been absolutely, as, as an addict in, in early recovery, I was absolutely shocked at how loving and accommodating and and helpful people can be when you're being honest and mm-hmm. sincere. I, I, people can deal with hard things, yeah. but they have to know honestly what they're dealing with and people will surprise you um all right so i'm right back in the middle of it you know i put my poor wife through all kinds of humiliating things including you know positive std tests and and you know all of this stuff so i swore i will never ever i will will take this to my grave Mm -hmm. i'm not going to put her through this experience again yeah i'm done but i but there's something wrong with me. I can't stop. If I could have found a way to, and you know what? Honestly, if I could have found a way to solve it on my own, I would have. Yeah. I would have found a way. Yeah, I think we all would have. But it doesn't work that way. So doomed to fail. So then let's skip forward to 2013. It's March 31st. It's Easter Sunday. Tomorrow's April Fool's Day. And one of the people that I was involved with um, had gone to her religious leader who, you know, and it began. The dominoes started falling. And she she told me, she told me what she had done. And I realized that I wasn't going to be able to keep my secrets. Yeah. And there wasn't enough left of me to hold anything together. And I just collapsed. Um. In a, in a series of very scary, very traumatic events, uh, which included things like my wife fighting to take my gun from me, her having to call my then 17 and 15-year-old boys to intercede. Um, they called the police. For the first time in my life, I was put in a police car and taken to the hospital where they talked to me for a minute and sedated me and then sent me home. But I just resolved that because there was nothing, I uh, nothing mm-hmm. was going to work. And, and my wife was so confused. She just kept saying, tell me what's going on. And I said, it's too late. It's too late. Just let me go. You know? Mm-hmm. Anyway, so they brought me home from the hospital and, we had to get up in the morning and do papers. We were doing newspapers at the time. And and I thought I'll just, and it, uh, I was trying to figure out all these ways that I could finish it. And I, I finally happened upon, I'm going to gonna throw myself in front of a train because the paper route was right by. So I said, I'll do that. And so I did the papers and then I was walking home. They were supposed to pick me up, but I, yeah. And of course, the minute I wasn't where I was supposed to be, they go into panic mode. And so now the police are looking at, are going around looking for me. And oh my gosh, what a long, traumatic, terrible, terrible night. 
but I remember walking down the tracks. I walked far down the tracks. It was very early in the morning. I thought, nobody will see me here. Mm-hmm. It'll be too late. And I, and I sat down on the tracks in a dark place and thought, I'll just, just wait. And then I did something that I think changed everything. But I prayed and I said, do you know what? I'm going to do this. Father, I'm going to do this. Unless you have other plans for me, which I couldn't imagine what they would be. But I did say that. I said, unless you have other plans for me, I'm going to do this and we'll just sort everything out when I get there. But that, again, kind of like in the chair, kind of broke the moment. Mm-hmm. And I got really, really tired. I thought, I'm just going to go home. I just want to go home. I used to say that all the time too, meaning that not necessarily that I physically wanted to go to where I live, but I wanted to go to a place where I was safe yeah. and things were calm. I just want to go home. Oh, man. And man, the anxiety and the self-hatred and all that kind of stuff would manifest itself and my chest would just hurt. I hurt all the time. I felt hollow. Anyway, so I walked home. As soon as I walked into the door, opened up the door, walked in, um, Christy was there and she was just livid. Oh, she was beside herself. And she lit into me and I just turned right back around and walked out. Mm-hmm. And nothing was going to stop me. And I remember walking back toward the train and just thinking, just being in such a dark place, nothing mattered. Yeah. I was, I was going to a well-deserved execution. And I was crossing the park and I had another weird fleeting thought. I remember thinking, man, I'm really, I would have liked to have been a grandfather. I think that would have been cool. Yeah. And that was the last thought that I really had after that. I just, you know, I let go of that. And then there was, there was nothing. It was, it was just so, so dark. So I went up to the train tracks and, but now it wasn't quite so early in the morning, you know, people were starting to move around, you know, going to work and whatever. So I was sitting by the tracks and this lady who was driving up and I didn't find out this till much, much later when I met her Mm -hmm. because I didn't know who these people were. In fact, I had to go back. This was like three years after the fact and get a copy of the police report. And then I looked these people up and that was a really, that was a really, really neat experience. Maybe we'll share that in a later episode. But she was driving past and she saw me and she said to herself, there's something wrong with that guy. There's something really wrong with that guy. And she had her, her, her own stuff and she had this terrible anxiety and she didn't want, she knew she needed to do something right? But she didn't want to have to be the one to do it. She says, what am I supposed to do? He's a big guy, you know? I, mm-hmm. But she knew something was wrong. So she she told me that she, she said, okay, God, what am I supposed to do? And she felt like you need to turn around. So she turned around and she came up and she pulled up right next to me and I was just getting ready to, to run in front of this train. And I had timed it out. I knew exactly what I needed to do. And she saw what I was about to do and she yelled at me and I turned and I looked at her and she said that I was just, there was nothing there. She said, your eyes were just black. There's nothing there, you know? 
and but it had messed up the timing so I knew that I'd missed this train so it passed so then I crossed the tracks and kind of went down just a little bit and kind of stay out of sight but she realized that something was wrong and so she grabbed a guy who was because I was going to wait for the train coming the other way because it was only a few minutes behind yeah. right anyway she grabbed she grabbed a guy and engaged engaged him and 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 the train was coming and he was walking toward me you know he was out for his morning run and he said are you okay you know are you okay and I remember grabbing him I grabbed him by the shoulders and I threw him out of the way and I heard him stumble and then I ran for the train and he I don't know how he recovered and then overtook me, but he did, and he tackled me. He tackled me, and I was three steps away from death. And I remember the ground rumbling as the, the train passed and filling my mouth with dust. And I just just lost. I just just sobbed. I was so broken. I hated everything about myself. I wanted to cease to be. I just wanted everything to end. I just wanted it to stop. But I was also so terrified of what it would actually be like to, to be brought before my creator. The idea of that was absolutely terrifying to me. Yeah. But I wanted, I just wanted everything to stop. I couldn't manage it anymore. I was, anyway, then came a hinge point in my life, and I didn't realize the significance of this and the significance of this until later. But there I was lying on the ground in the dirt, and this guy was sitting on me, and he was patting me on the back, saying, "Everything's going to be okay, but people lie." <laughs> <laughs> Just so happened that my father drove by and saw this big commotion. He was out looking for me. He pulled over. The police were there. He picked me up off the ground. He embraced me. And said one of the most significant, powerful things that I'd ever, you know, I had no idea it was going to affect me the way that it would, but I remember the officer asking him, do you know who he is? So I, I assume it was an officer, I don't know. Do you know who he is? And, and my father said, yes, he's mine. Which was completely contradictory to the moniker I'd picked to myself that I was no man's son. Yeah. Uh, do you know what, if I ever, when the day comes that I meet the maker, meet my maker, and I imagine that he will embrace me, but I don't, that feeling will not be strange to me because that's how my father hugged me that day. And do you know what he did? He did. He didn't excuse my behavior. Didn't try to take me home. Didn't try to argue. 
with anybody. He picked me up, embraced me, dusted me off, and then put me in the back of the police car. And they took me to the hospital where I was committed. And, oh, gosh. My brother called me. I don't know if it was that day or the next day. It was probably the next day because, well, I don't know. And I, ha I still, to this day, I don't really understand the turmoil or the crazy that that ignited. Because I was in the hospital, I think, for two or three weeks. I think. A couple weeks. And, of course, you know, there was just this. Because nobody had any idea, really, what was going on. And they still didn't. Yeah. There was no explanation. I just, you know, my wife found out that, you know, from this person and from our religious leader that, you know, and stuff started coming to light, but, and so there was just this craziness while I was in the hospital, but my brother called and I remember him saying, Gary, you've proven that you're, he says, I have no idea. I have no idea what, why you're, why you, what, you know, why you're where yeah. you're at and what's going on. I have no idea. He said, but you've proven that you're willing to do something dramatic to change it. Why don't you do something dramatic in the other direction? Oh, and those words weighed on me mm -hmm. in there and wouldn't leave me alone. And at the time, my plan was, I'm just going to tell these people what they want to hear. I'll play this little game. And the minute I get out of here, I'll I'll do the job right. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what? I don't know. I, I probably shouldn't. Well, no, I'll go ahead and tell this story. So while I was in the hospital, I needed some clothes. And eventually my dad brought me some clothes. And among those clothes was a Superman t-shirt. And this was about the same time that the new movie had come out. And that Superman symbol and the, and the promotional material was said, oh, it means hope. Yeah. And I thought, <laughs> oh, just bear with me. This is, this is some really dark humor. But I thought, well, you know, I got this Superman shirt. I thought, well, I tried a speeding bullet and that was taken from me and I tried to train. train. Maybe next time I'll, I'll try the tall building in a single man. Yeah. Yeah. It was very dark humor. And then that turned into a kind of a little joke in there. If they'd give me another chance, that's what I would do. But then I was reading a, a religious text. I found it there in the hospital and I didn't want to look at it and I didn't want to deal with it, but I, I wanted it close to me. And I was flipping through the pages and it opened up and there was a passage in it that talked about not excusing yourself in the least of grief, in the least degree because of your sins, but letting the Lord's mercy have full sway in your life. Mm -hmm. Right? That was the gist of it. I remember, oh, I had a dream that I was going to have to choose, that there was a point coming in very, very quickly that I was going to have to make a decision. And that decision would either lead me to a very difficult road, but it would eventually lead to happiness in life. Mm -hmm. Or the other one would be very quick, very easy, and would lead to death. And I knew that I was going to have to make the choice very soon. Mm -hmm. And I think it was the next day after the dream I was in the session with my therapist with the therapist and I'd been there the entire hour and he had a family that had come in they were going to do some kind of group family thing or whatever and so they were all waiting and 
we were wrapping it up. He says, we're going to have to go. And, and I remember telling him, I'm such a terrible person. I'm a terrible person. And he looked at me and he said, what evidence of that do you have other than what you've told me? And Daniel, I had, in that moment, I knew that the, I knew the moment had come that I had to make the decision. Mm-hmm. And I am not kidding you when I tell you it was the hardest thing that I have ever done. Yeah. But I told him. And for the first time in my life, I let another person know what I had done and what I was dealing with and what was going on. And it was so, it, I, I kid you not, it was the hardest thing that I've ever done. And I absolutely believe that God was just waiting for me to take that first step because the minute I started talking, everything came out mm-hmm. and I felt just pulled out of this dark place. And for the first time in my life, I began to feel hope. You know, I just poured out all this stuff and I thought for sure this guy would, that his mind would be blown or he'd just, you know, I hadn't. And reject you. And reject yeah. me. And I was just waiting for this. And do you know what he said to me? He looked at me and he said, all right, now we can get to work. And I wasn't expecting that. (laughs) But it was funny. After that moment, everything was different. And I committed to myself right then and there. I said, I do not care what it takes. I will not live this way anymore. Mm -hmm. I can't. I've demonstrated that I can't. I've not only demonstrated that I can't live this way anymore, but I'm unwilling to live this way. So whatever it takes, if it means that my wife is going to Divorce me, I'll facilitate that. If it means that another man is going to raise my children, so be it. I will not live this way any longer. Yeah. If I lose my family, if I lose my friends, and I end up living in some little basement apartment somewhere, so be it. I'm not doing this anymore. I will not live like this anymore. Mm-hmm. And then everything was different. And then a lot of things happened in very, very quick succession. Um, I talked to my ecclesiastical leader and I let him know exactly what I was dealing with. I talked to my father. I talked to my brother. I talked to my wife first. She had the therapist. You know, we had a little group thing and the therapist was there and she was so mad. Oh, that poor girl. I destroyed her entire frame of reference that she had built her whole life around and I just turned it all upside down. But even in the midst of all of that, she called me every name in the book. Mm Well-deserved. She wasn't wrong. (laughs) But do you know what she said? She said, that all makes sense. Everything makes sense now. I understand. And then she decided that we were very wisely told that in a, in a moment of heightened emotional crisis like that is not the time to make any decisions, mm-hmm. that ha- any permanent decisions, any you know decisions that have any kind of permanent consequences. And she wanted to wait and see, because she asked me what I was going to do, and I told her what I you know I said. Well, I'm not going to live like this anymore, even if I and you know I yeah. told her what I just shared with you. And I think she wanted to wait and see. 
so we were separated. I, I did, when I eventually left the hospital, I went home to my mom's and my mom and dad's and lived in the basement. And that was about two months. I think I was there for about two months before I was invited to. Mm-hmm. But I threw myself into it. I, I started going to therapy. I started going to 12 group, 12 step group, went to group therapy, counseled with my religious leaders. I think for the first three or four months, I was doing something every single night Yeah, that was recovery related. In addition to maintaining my job and keeping my, you know, continue to pay the bills and fulfilling all of my obligations that I had as a father, you know, about the only thing that, you know, I, I just, I didn't sleep at home, but I would show up there first thing in the morning and do papers with them. And then I would, I wouldn't leave until they had all been put to bed, ready for school or, you know, ready for bed. And if you look at it, if I were to sit down and write down everything on paper, what it was I was dealing with, do you want a natural break? Is that what... No, I was just looking at the time. We're just <laughs> keep going. Okay. If I thought, if you looked at if you looked at my life on paper, you would think that it was the worst year of my life. Mm-hmm. I had to put together. I had to put back together every relationship that I had. Had to. I went through. You know, I was excommunicated from my church. I had to go through therapy, you know, I, but do you know what? It was one of the most hopeful years of my life. Mm. As hard as it was and as challenging as it was, I, for the first time in my life, I really felt hope. Everything was different. It's not fair that the day that caused my family one of their greatest traumas, if not the greatest trauma, was the day that everything started getting better for me. But that's what it was. Well, you know? I'm I'm on the flip side of that coin. It could also be, a, even though it was traumatic, things got better for them too. Yeah, you're not wrong, and that's yeah. a good way to look at it. Yeah. You know, I guess it, still it had was the catalyst. Was something. I mean, your relationship with Christie's probably the best it's ever been. Oh yeah, your relationship with your boys is probably better than it's ever it's been. It's true. So. You know, but even by the end of that year, by the end of that year, I was already saying I could not conceive my life as good as it is right yeah. now. And there was a, you know, anyway. I mean, I understand. I mean, I've been in that dark place where it's like, I'm not going to get better. There's, there's no hope. I just got to float by. And I'm sure some of our listeners were, you know, have felt the same way or are feeling the same way. It's that weird trap we get ourselves into. Right. And the only freedom from that, which is the weird paradox, is by being completely honest, just unburdening everything. Right. It hurts those around us, but it's a temporary hurt. It is. It's not the kind of hurt that lingers and grows. Yeah. And anyway, so I started therapy, and things began to change. And do you know what? Let's... If we're gonna break this into two, let's, okay. let's make a natural break now. All right. That's a longish that's a longer episode, but Yes. This has been a very long episode, but it's <laughs> it's been good. It's been uh, you know, there's been a lot. Um and I'm sure someone out there hearing this story could get help from it. So we'll just imagine they're in that chair. Now this story has a happy ending, but you're gonna ha- yeah. yeah. You're gonna have to come back to the uh 
You're going to have to come back next week. <laughs> yes, come back next week for part two. For part two, the happy um, Of Gary's story. So um, I guess you'll sign off and then I'll sign off. For All right, yeah. well, uh, so this is Gary telling you to do the next right thing. And this is Daniel saying, find the humility in your recovery. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, thoughts, or concerns, or have any suggestions for future episodes, please contact us at 12thsteppodcast at gmail.com. That is 1-2-T-H-STEPPODCAST at gmail.com. As a fellowship of recovering addicts, Sex Addicts Anonymous offers a message of hope to anyone who suffers from sex addiction. Check out saa-recovery.org.